Well, good morning, man. It's good to be with you. Uh, man, I uh, really miss hearing our sister's voice, voices singing with us this morning, but it is good to hear male voices sing out loud. Uh, so it's good to sing with you, to be with you. My name is Nathan. It's so, so good to be here with you again at one of these uh, seminars. I was with you back here in October to help us think through the gospel man and technology. I'm going to move back just a little bit. There we go. Um, and so it is good to be back here together to think about this really important topic of pornography. Uh, and you Christchurch guys, we are glad that you have joined us here as well. Uh, welcome to my old stomping grounds, this room. I've stood right here doing something like this more times than I can count, uh, but it is wild that you all, Desert Springs, sent us out as Christchurch uh, now over five years ago. Uh, time flies. And so there are many of you Christchurch guys who have zero connection to Desert Springs Church and had to ask where the building was. Uh, so that's wild. Um, but we are here to think about an unbelievably important topic. I've gotten to the point over the past decade or so uh, that unless I have heard you tell me specifically of specific victories and grace in this area of pornography, I just assume that if you are a male of pubescent age, this is to some degree or another uh, an issue for you, an ongoing struggle for you. Uh, I don't think that's overly cynical. It's just a decade or so of empirical evidence. And even if this isn't something of a personal struggle for you right now at this moment, uh, you have countless friends for whom it is. Uh, Dave said earlier, there are Maybe some of you for whom this is still a struggle. I'm, I'm guessing maybe the majority. Uh, so even if this is, is not an issue for you today, uh, there are men sitting at your table for whom it is. There are men sitting in your spheres of influences and in your relationships for whom it is. So this is something that we need ongoing clarity in, ongoing focus in. So there are just many, many approaches to thinking about pornography, both from Christian and non-Christian perspectives these days. More and more non-Christians are beginning to realize the problem of pornography, its effect on the brain. Things like regular use of pornography can certainly rewire neural connections in the brain very similarly to the way that meth or cocaine can. Sociologists are observing that teenage and premarital sex these days is sharply decreasing. Now that sounds like good news, right? that premarital sex is sharply, teenage sex is sharply decreasing. That sounds like good news, but until you realize that it's likely just because of pornography addiction. That sex with another human is just more difficult. And that's concerning. And marriage and birth rates are beginning to certainly reflect that. Not to mention that the kind of sex that pornography teaches us is very concerning. Many of you know of a pitcher for the Dodgers who has been on leave for about a month now uh, as police investigate allegations that he choked out his girlfriend with her hair into unconsciousness as he had sex with her. He claims that this is consensual, that this is both what they wanted and both what they were uh, thinking about and desiring. She says, absolutely not the case. It's in the face of this kind of reality that the New York Times profiled a sex-positive educator at a swanky uh, New York prep school over her lecture to high school students about, quote, porn literacy. She gave a lecture to high school students about porn literacy. Her worldview is that since pornography is so ubiquitous, it is just a certain inevitability that teenage 
boys and girls will regularly go to it, that we should expose them to pornography as early as possible. We should expose them to different categories. We should expose them to interviews with performers so that students, teenagers, young teenagers, perhaps even prepubescent teenagers, will learn how to, quote, uh, sorry, will learn how to, quote, critically assess what they see on the screen. For example, how to recognize what is realistic and what is not how to deconstruct implicit gender roles, how to identify what types of behavior could be a health or a safety risk. This is the world we live in. More or less, it's the air we breathe, the sexual air that we breathe today. And as Christians, most of us, I'm assuming most of us in this room, don't like that we keep coming back to it. And yet, we're not sure how to get out of it, out of the grasp, the hold of pornography and or sexual sin. So we've treated it like an addiction. There are certainly some methods of counseling and uh, approaches to fighting this where we can treat it and approach it like other addictive substances. We've tried to guilt our way out of it. We've tried to discipline our way out of it. We've tried to even gospel our way out of it. And yet we still can't seem to make progress or find victory. Well, hopefully today will be a small, perhaps even a monumental step towards progress, towards victory. And maybe, as we get started here, maybe, let me just say this, that today, this is the day that for some of you, many of you, perhaps all of us, that the last time that we looked at pornography was the last time of our life. Today might be the day of death. Today might be the day of life. But we'll get there. We've got much to do. So I'm going to tell you where we're headed in our first 35 minutes or so together here in this first session. We're going to think about the purpose of ordered sexuality. That is why God made us as sexual beings in the first place. If we don't understand that, then we will constantly be fighting the wrong battles. And then in our next session, after we take some time to think about that first session together around our tables, uh, then we will then consider the wreckage of disordered sexuality. So the purpose of ordered sexuality and the wreckage of disordered sexuality. All right, let's get into it. Before we get going, can I just say that we probably need uh, more, much more than 35 minutes, probably like three to four hours probably uh, a month-long, maybe a decade-long seminar <laughs> on what we are about to get into. That is, that the story of our sexuality, that both the world and even the church has shaped us in, means that our sexuality has unfortunately become so ingrained to who we are as humans. Darwinian models explain that your sexuality is inherently and innately an evolutionary impulse merely to ensure the propagation of our species. Pleasure evolved with sex to ensure that we keep having sex. So sex is merely nothing more than neurons or chemicals. It's important, but it's ultimately not that big of a deal. It's not really anything different than any other kind of human interaction that you have that gives you any some sort of pleasure or chemical firing in your brain. Well, there's that model, that sex isn't that big of a deal, so who really cares? Or there are psychological models, like from Sigmund Freud or Alfred Kinsey, that explain that nearly every aspect of your life 
can be explained or interpreted by some understanding of your sexual desire and, and or your corresponding repression of sexual desire or your lack of sexual expression. So humans can only really understand themselves or live fully realized lives as they begin to break sexual norms and experiment in whatever way brings them the most happiness. This dominant narrative today is why it is seemingly an act of violence to even suggest, to even suggest any kinds of sexual limits or restraints. So on the one hand, sex is nothing. It's just chemical firing. And on the other hand, sex is everything. And our culture is telling us that simultaneously. There are even models of sexuality within the church that encourage teens and college students to, or anyone who is not yet married, to completely turn off all sexual desire until marriage because desire in and of itself is bad. If you can pursue absolute sexual purity and avoid all sexual immorality, then God will reward that not only with a spouse, but with the most mind-blowing sexual life that you could have ever hoped for or imagined. Essentially, that all of the pornographic uh, impulses and desires that you have trained yourself in might one day become reality with your wife. It'll be amazing. But just hang on and be as pure as you can, and God will reward that. It's some sort of sexual prosperity gospel that obedience produces sexual blessing, and the existence of sexual struggle must indicate disobedience and or a lack of faith. And so as Christians, we actually don't give much thought to why God has made us sexual beings in the first place. We don't have a great story for that. The wider culture out there has a wonderful story of meaning, of belonging. But as Ed Shaw says, the evangelical church's basic message to singles is of just say no, and it just doesn't have real credibility anymore. It embarrasses many of us to even ask unmarried people to do it. It sounds positively unhealthy. It lacks any traction in today's world, simply producing incredulity by the majority. And so, even though we need three hours or three decades, let's try to, in the next few minutes, to consider why the Christian clinical psychologist Julie Slattery says that sexuality is not a problem to be solved, but a territory to reclaim. That's, if we just leave here perhaps with that sentence, we'd be making serious progress. That sexuality is not a problem to be solved, but a territory to reclaim. So why did God make us sexual beings in the first place? That is, why did he not make us asexual? He could have. There are other asexual organisms in our world. He could have made me into this blob that like at my belt, like the top half just slips off and now I am two. I could have reproduced myself. He could have made me to reproduce myself in that way. But he didn't. Why? Well, the purpose of a sexual relationship is this. To serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God in Christ. The reason that God made you a sexual being in the first place, to have sexual relationships with another human is to serve as a living portrait of the life-changing spiritual union that believers have with God in Christ. How's this? Well, it has lots of components. There's lots of moving parts in the sentence that I just gave you. First, let's think about a, a hammer blow. If I had a sheet of aluminum right here and I hit the aluminum with a hammer, what would be left, this impression, is not the hammer, and yet it looks very much like a hammer. 
It looks like the hammer that made it or that of a shadow. A shadow, if we went outside and saw the shadow of a tree on the ground, that shadow is not the tree, though it looks very much like the tree. It isn't actually the thing. This is what the Bible calls types. In the same way that God has purposed the Passover lamb as he was bringing Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, this was fashioned to be a type of Christ. It is the shadow of the substance, the thing that looks like what the Jesus who would come to lead his people out of a greater slavery, out of a greater exodus. Similarly, God created sexual union to be a type of Christ's one flesh union with his bride, the church. The Passover lamb did not just have and share some happy coincidences. It's not like uh, Paul, many years later, is looking back on history, considering what Jesus has done, and said, you know what? That very much reminds me of Jesus. Uh, No, I'm convinced that God, in this story of Exodus, in being outside of time and seeing the future, uh, seeing the, the rescue and the redemption of Jesus, fashioned this story to very much look like it. This is where we get our word, a typewriter. These are hammers of the letter A or W or something that hit the paper and then leave its impression. Jesus is the hammer and hits the paper and leaves an Exodus story. He leaves a sexual story. Think about Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 through 32. Paul writes this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, quoting from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. By what logic does Paul ask husbands and wives to relate to one another as Christ and the church? The answer is found in verse 32, that this mystery of the first marriage actually refers to, it points toward Christ in the church. Marriage is a type of Christ's relationship to the church. Jesus and the church, get this, Jesus and the church come before Adam and Eve. Not in an actual chronological timeline, but Jesus and the church, the triune God's understanding of sexuality comes after his understanding of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead and his relationship with the church. And so Augustine says this, that it is of Christ and the church that it is most truly said, the two shall be one flesh. There are two different but complementary beings. Throughout the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, there is unity through difference. There is light and darkness. There is heaven and earth. There is land and sea. There is sky and water. There is male and female. Biological difference and complementarity brings one flesh. And I do not think it is to take us back to an age of sexual repression to say that there is a biological fit to how God has designed and created humanity as sexual beings through difference. Something profound occurs through sexual intercourse. The marriage union is not simply a legal union. 
The marriage union is not simply a social union or a financial union or a familial union, but rather a union of bodies, a sharing of physical life. After the marriage covenant is verbally, verbally agreed to at the wedding, it is ratified with sex. Sex initiates and then sustains the marriage covenant. About a decade or so ago, I was at a marriage, I, don't even, I think it was a marriage conference. It might've been a church planning conference. I'm not even sure, but it was Sam Storms up there. And Sam Storms said something uh, that I thought was initially uh, intentionally just provocative, but not really true. But then the more I've thought about it over the next 10 years or so, I think he was right on. And that he said that sex is very much like communion. Communion in the life of the church, just as when we come to the table and we take of the supper, it is a continual and visceral, tangible, physical reminder of the covenant that we have with God in Christ. It is initiating and then sustaining, sex is very much the same way. Sex binds and bonds continually and renews the covenant that we have made with our wife if we are married. So that's why sexual expression outside of marriage is so destructive. It's broken apart from its very purpose. Like fire outside of the fireplace, what should be Comfort-providing what should be a life-giving place of warmth now can become a destructive place of havoc, of insecurity. But remember that sex is a type. It's not a sermon illustration. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is he's not looking back and saying, hey, I'm seeing all these marriages. That kind of reminds me of, of Jesus. No, he's saying all of these marriages actually point to Jesus. And so before continuing about sex and relationships, I want to make sure that we are actually very clear on the gospel first. If all of this, if all, our sexual identity, the, pro, the, the, the very purpose for which we are created as sexual beings is meant to point us to and to help us better understand the gospel, then I want to make sure that we are first on the same page about what we're talking about. That of union with Christ. The gospel does say that we are forgiven, that our sins can be forgiven at the cross of, of Christ. That's why Jesus' death is so important. God is able to forgive sin because his wrath is poured out on Jesus while on the cross. The, the wrath that ought to be towards you and your sin is now attracted, absorbed, and received in the person of Jesus. And forgiveness, our justification, that of our being made right before God is really, really important. But it's not actually not the end. It's not the purpose of why Christ has come. Justification is just a means to an end. Forgiveness is actually not enough. Why? Because we keep sinning. We often think of the gospel as just a second chance, a redo, a, a, a new chance, a wipe the board clean so I can get better and do better the next time. But we don't just have mistakes erased. We must have our very nature changed. We must have the source of our sinful actions replaced. Our spiritual death must be made alive. So that's why we might define the gospel as, I mean, there's much, much more than this, but we might define it as the good news that God saves sinners through the life, the death, 
and the resurrection of Jesus. Not just the death of Christ, but his life. Just as the husband and wife become one flesh physically, we share in Christ's flesh. We share in his spiritual life. We become united to him. His life, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Or in a verse that might sound heretical to you if it weren't in the Bible, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.4 that we become sharers in the divine nature. When we become united to Christ, we become sharers in God. We are born again, new life, not just because we say a prayer of forgiveness or we begin to get better. We get past our, or we get our past forgiven or we begin to make progress with sexual self-control, with controlling our desires. No, we are born again because we receive his life through a union that sex amongst humans is meant to point, point us toward. And so the effect of this is that knowledge of this higher reality, of our union with Christ, of our being sharers in the triune God, knowledge of that higher reality then helps us to understand how we should behave on this earthly reality. In other words, our sex lives should be patterned after the way in which Christ and the church relate spiritually. The way that we behave sexually must conform to that which God has created sex to illustrate. That is, the life-changing nature of the gospel. So just as Christ reserves himself spiritually for his spouse, that is the church, so too are we called to reserve ourselves sexually for our wife. Christ is united to the church alone. Thus, a man must be united to his wife alone. Christ does not divorce his bride. We must not divorce our wife. Sex with our spouse should be means of cultivating deeper intimacy with one another and with God. Sex with our spouse while cultivating intimacy and then, then pleasure becoming just a byproduct, like our union with Christ is ordered toward multiplication, that of go and make disciples, sex ought to be ordered toward multiplication in childbearing, in the discipleship of the family. And so... Our bodies tell God's story. Sex is so sacred and so important, so vital to who we are as embodied human beings because it is the physical way that we understand the draw to, the celebration of covenant love. We married men need to hear this. Like I always thought of the phrase, sex is worship as confusing and really strange. Like sex can be such a worshipful experience. I did not know what that means or meant and really still means some, to some degree or the other. Like was I supposed to like say, all right, hang on just a second. Like, Lord, I lift your name on high. Like we should stop and pray. I don't know. <laughs> not necessarily, I think. Nope, yep. <laughs> Got a firm no. <laughs> But that sex is a good gift to remind us that sex is not merely about getting your desires met, whenever or however, but that sex is a good gift given to two people, not one. It is to point us, like all good gifts, toward the gift giver in thankfulness and in love. Just like any gift, 
that you might have, the lunch that you are going to eat today, a vacation that you might get to go on, that is not the end in and of itself. Not worship of the gift itself. Sex is a good gift, but a terrible God. And we can approach even marital sex in horribly idolatrous ways. Now, I've said a lot already to married guys. What about you teenagers? What about you guys in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond who are single? I've got a lot more to say about singleness. Uh, In fact, we did a Saturday seminar very similar to this kind of thing with guys and gals at Christ Church a few months ago. You can find the audio of that uh, on our podcast or website. And I think that might be something that married men too would perhaps benefit from and thinking towards not just your own purpose for marriage, but then even thinking through the greater body of Christ, that we are not just churches of married people and teenagers or something, but that we are churches made up of married people, single people, young people, old people, the body of Christ with very many parts. But you single dudes might be sitting here thinking today, yeah, all that sounds great. Everything that you just talked about sounds great for all of you other dudes who actually get to have sex with your wife. So is celibacy, is the intentional decision either temporarily or long-term to keep oneself from sexual expression, is celibacy inhuman? Is it living less than for what God intends for you? To answer that question with a yes would be to say that Jesus Christ, who lived the most fully realized, the most contented, the most satisfied life in human history, lived less than a human life. Now, there's no doubt that God has hardwired sexual desire into humans, and that's actually a good thing. Marriage is a relationship that requires and demands self-sacrifice, demands self-denial, mutual submission, and love. Why in the world Would humans voluntarily enter into a relationship like that, signing up for self-denial? Well, sexual desire and accompanying desire for intimacy is a strong pull. And yet, the way of Jesus is actually about growing in self-denial, not self-fulfillment. Ed Shaw, who is a same-sex attracted pastor in England, committed to a celibate life, says that Western Christians have, by and large, stopped denying ourselves. We now talk more about our right to be ourselves. Our Christian lives are more about self-gratification. They are merely a continuation of our previous lives with a thin Christian veneer, just being nicer to a few more people. That'll hit. And so even in thinking about marriage, we tend to think about sexual self-denial as something that you have to slog through until you get married. But then, once you get married, now everything goes out the window, and now I no longer have to practice self-denial. Sexual health in marriage is often reduced to merely how often, or is it good, is it satisfying, rather than sexual health being evaluated in our marriages as, is God using our longings to draw us into deeper intimacy with each other and with him? All humans are living with and experiencing some level of sexual brokenness, married or single. Which is why we need to focus less on avoiding sexual immorality and moving toward what Dr. Slattery calls sexual maturity. Yes, we we must turn. We must 
turn from, we must put off, but if we merely focus on putting off the old man, on turning from, we will continually go back. I'm convinced. Dave actually mentioned earlier the expulsive power of a greater affection. If you have a, if you have a milk jug and you want to use that thing for something, how do you get the milk suds out of the milk jug of the plastic gallon? You can't just fill it with a little bit of water and shake it around and then pour it out. You must flush it out. You must fill that thing and so the suds are flushed out. And the same is true with our hearts and with sin. We must be called toward Christ, toward a sexual maturity, a sexual discipleship in which all of our desires come under the lordship of Jesus as we follow him in self-denying joy. But this does not mean that single people lead less than human lives or are living lives of wasting their sexuality. One of my favorite dudes in the whole world, another same-sex attracted pastor committed to a life of celibacy in England named Sam Albury, he says this, if marriage shows us, shows us the shape of the gospel, we've already talked about that, right? Marriage shows us the shape of of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. This is why the church needs single people to remind us that the joy and fulfillment of marriage in this life is partial and can only be temporal. The presence of singles who find their fullest meaning and satisfaction in Christ is a visible, physical testimony to the fact that the end of all of our longings come in Jesus. Or, as Glenn Harrison, he puts it this way, whether we are married or single in this life, sexual desire is our inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. A kind of navigation aid showing us the way home. You could think of it as a form of body language. Our bodies talk to us about a greater reality of fulfillment and eternal blessing to urge us to go there. Your sexual desire is an inbuilt homing instinct for the divine, urging you to go there. I'm sorry to keep quoting people, but I feel like folks who are actually living all of this do carry a little bit more experiential authority, even uh, thinking through their own singleness. Sam Albury says this, this is liberating. It means that my sexual feelings don't need to be met for their purpose to be fulfilled. When I feel that deep sense of longing, that feeling of sexual restlessness and frustration, I am to think that ultimate restlessness that comes when we live apart from our creator. A restlessness that has its answer in the one who promised deep and abiding rest for all who come to him. Sexual sin feels like the answer to that restlessness, but like all of sin's pleasures, it's only temporary and fleeting. Celibacy is not a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way of fulfilling it. It's allowing our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel that we will never ultimately make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for to point us to God's love for us in Christ. So we'll get to pornography more specifically in the next session. But a few helpful quick reminders have been so helpful to me, to my own heart and mind over the past many years as I experienced sexual temptation. And that's first, that this desire, this small sexual desire is just but one millionth of the kind of love that the triune God has moved toward me in. 
The triune God is not moved toward me in sexual desire at all. But if my sexual desire in covenant marriage is like the impression of in the aluminum sheet, the shadow on the ground, it looks like the real thing, then this disordered desire, this disordered temptation of sexual desire away from how God created it needs to be realigned to the real thing. It's like a shadow on the ground that doesn't follow the tree. It doesn't make sense. It must be realigned to look like the tree. And so when desire comes, desire is but just a fraction of God's love for me in Christ. Or second, when desire comes, homing instinct. Thank you, God, for this inbuilt homing instinct for the divine. Help me to go there. Help me to not go there, but help me to go there. Homing instinct. Thank you for this inbuilt homing instinct that you have given me for you. Or third, when temptation comes, I need to be reminded of my union with Christ. Not merely of my forgiveness at the cross, yes, but of my union with Christ. That if the death of Christ belongs to me, if he died on my behalf, then his resurrection life belongs to me as well. A word picture, an image that has changed my life is that of a cemetery where the evil one is prowling about, making sure that his captives stay dead under their, buried under their headstones, properly buried in their sin. And as he begins to walk up and down the rows of last name S's, there sits two angels sitting on either side of my headstone. And where was once engraved, here lies Nathan Sherman, dead in his sins, now is just an empty hole. And as sin and temptation come, the angels incredulously ask, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is risen. As sure as Jesus Christ is risen, Nathan is risen in resurrection power. And if those three spiritual realities aren't doing the trick that a, a fraction of God's love for me, uh, a homing instinct for the divine of that of why do you look for the living amongst the dead, then I need to be reminded of just over and over and over from God's word of his call on my life, on what he has called me out of and to. And surprisingly, the passages of scripture that are most ongoingly helpful for me are not the verses about sex or desire. We'll consider more Bible as we go, but often the sex verses aren't necessarily what I need. They aren't necessarily the expulsive power of flushing out the milk suds. But perhaps somewhere like Philippians 3, that indeed I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's stupid. But that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That'll flush it out. Suffering the loss of all things, that by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection of the dead, that I may know him, that I may gain him and be found in him. So I want to wrap up this session with this. Whether single or married, whether sexually content or sexually frustrated, whether attracted to the opposite sex, whether attracted to the same sex, whether attracted to both, whether attracted to neither, whether having not looked at pornography in years or having looked at pornography last night, that in feelings of longing, that in collapsed moments on the kitchen floor, in the heat of temptation, in the aftermath of guilt or regret, God's grace to you is not hypothetical, but real. Kathy Keller says this. She says, God doesn't inject hypothetical grace into your hypothetical nightmare situation so that you would know what it would actually feel like if you ever did end up in that situation. What we're imagining is actually life in the situation without God's presence, if we are depending on hypothetical grace. He only gives grace for our actual situation. C.S. Lewis makes a similar point when he says, remember one is giving the strength, given the strength to bear what happens, but not the 101 different things that might happen. God gives strength for what is happening now, not what might happen. And so like manna that is new every morning, God's grace for your justification, God's grace for your sanctification is not hypothetical, but real. It is sufficient it is vital. Doing this on your own with discipline or raw willpower will not work. God's grace to you is real. Sometimes discipline, willpower is needed, and we'll talk some about that, but on its own it is never going to happen. All right, so we're going to take a break here. Maybe you're disappointed so far. Uh, Maybe you came here to get punched in the face. Uh, I'm not going to punch you in the face. I might grab your collars uh, in this second session. But we've considered the purpose of ordered sexuality here. So we're going to consider some of these things around our tables now. Why did God make you a sexual being in the first place? Again, if we are missing that question, we will fight all of the wrong battles. So we're gonna talk through some of the questions that you have uh, on the sheets in front of you, and then we're gonna take a short break, grab some coffee, grab another snack, go to the restroom, and then we'll come back to think about the wreckage of disordered sexuality. Sound good? At several different transitions, including me going a little long, we're a little bit behind schedule. So um, just because we want to be sensitive to you doing the things that you need to do uh, in the late morning, we're just going to go for it. If you need to go to the restroom right now, you can do that. Uh, you Christchurch guys are new to the building, just right around the corner. Um, but we're going to keep moving. All right. Well, I love the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is all about wisdom. It's about understanding uh, the way that the world works, the way that humans work, the way that God works, and then acting as humans accordingly. Uh, it's almost like, if you think about wisdom or the Proverbs, it's almost like 
being able to look into the future, like an experienced sailor who has just seen and experienced every kind of wind, every current, every storm, every rope, he can see what happens before it happens. And so a friend of mine has said that wisdom is an investment in future joy. Wisdom is an investment in future joy. Well, we're going to spend the next few minutes together thinking about wisdom and folly. And then hopefully, uh, both in this time together and then around your tables, invest in some future joy together. But before we do that, uh, I want to tell you a story. Uh, In 1997 or 8, my family, I was a middle school kid. We got our first dial-up modem. I think I probably heard some guys in the football and basketball locker room uh, talk about that you could actually use this new thing called the internet to find pictures, not not videos, or dial-up, like 28K was not fast enough for that, uh, but pictures of naked women. Incredible. Like you didn't have to like get some older dude to uh, sneak into the gas station and get a Playboy or something. You could actually find it in your own house. And so, starting in eighth grade, I would fairly regularly do just that. I knew it wasn't right. I felt guilty about it in my conscience, but not guilty enough to really try to do anything about it. This continued into high school and then took off in college. When I got my own room, I got my own laptop that you could take into your bedroom. Again, I didn't like it, or so I thought. I was in accountability groups, but those groups were just essentially retroactive confessional booths. You'd be like, oh, you screwed up this week? Oh, I did too. Oh, shoot. Well, let's try harder next week, and then we'd do it again. Just to kind of appease our consciences? I'm not sure. I even routinely initiated challenges with some of the guys that were in my campus ministry in college. I would start like, all right, this semester it's the Thanksgiving challenge, or the spring break challenge in which we would all try and fail to avoid pornography and masturbation until that landmark on the calendar hit. And then apparently, like, once you got past Thanksgiving, then all bets were off or something. I don't know. And then in my junior year of college, my wife, my now wife, Marcy, and I started dating. She had been around some real chumps in high school and college, so I was now committed to at least portraying myself as this, like, white knight boyfriend, perhaps even uh, fiance, husband, uh, that would finally lead her in righteousness. And so she asked me once when we were dating early on, hey, is pornography a thing for you? And I was like, oh, no, no, no. Like I had this image to maintain, to uphold of the white knight. And so I just straight up lied to her. No, that's not a thing. And as naively trusting of me as she was, she just believed me. Uh, But for you single guys out there, uh, here is an unsettling reality. The habits that you have as a single guy will absolutely continue on as your habits into marriage. You have trained your instincts, your appetites, your impulses to be about you, whatever you want, whenever you want it. And no less was true for me into marriage. We got married and pornography just continued right on in. It was maybe a month or two into marriage, uh, but then right back like the old dog back to the old vomit. When I'd be late, up late by myself in seminary classes, no less. Uh, late doing 
writing papers or studying Greek or something late by myself, Marcy was out of town or something. It would be this constant push and pull, an hours long battle and wrestle of will I or won't I? And more often than not, I will. I felt horrible, but what can you do? At least I'm struggling. At least I'm feeling bad about it. At least I struggled with it for like an hour or two before I finally came in instead of just going right to it. Well, again, here in seminary then, um, we knew a gal, Marcy and I knew a gal who was, had just started dating a guy who had recently become a Christian. And he, for the very first time in his life, was trying to rid himself of pornography. Great. And so having those conversations with her and with him, Marcy just asked me, hey, that's still not a thing, right? I was like, oh, no, that's not a thing. I mean, I had lied about it for years. And so I could not come clean now. But all week long, as I'm sitting in classes, like New Testament classes and pastoral ministry classes, my conscience was just eating me alive from the inside out. And so later on in the week, on a Thursday night, came home and I told her everything. Not only that I had regularly been looking at pornography, essentially since puberty, uh, but I still was. And all of the things that go along with that. And that maybe was most hurtful, I don't know, it was, a, it was a package deal, but maybe what was most hurtful to her is that I had lied to her for so long. And so this was devastating. While she eventually got to a place of grace and of kindness to me, she asked me that first night when I told her everything. She said, so all of the things that you promised to me at our wedding, you didn't mean? And forsaking all others, I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. I do. I didn't. I had no answer. And so the next month was probably the most, one of the most important months of my life. Uh, we knew a couple from our hometown who was about 10 years older than us and who about 10 years prior had gone through the exact same thing in their marriage. And we talked on the phone for a solid week, just hours and hours with them. And Matt Sawada told me something that week that would change my life forever. He said, Nathan, you are a Christian. You are married Pornography cannot be an option. The last time that you looked at porn must be the last time. And initially, when he said this, it felt like he just put a million pounds of weight of legalism onto my shoulders. It's like, I can never. What he just said, pornography can't be an option, like that's, that's not reality. But over the next month or so, those million pounds of weight turned into like a million balloons of life and freedom, of like the balloons and up. Pornography being not an option was now finally the place where my joy, my heart, my desires, my marriage could begin to soar. Because here's the thing, it felt like legalistic weight initially because I came to realize in that first month, and even 
beyond that. It took a while. In those first few months, even years, I came to realize that I actually didn't want to give up pornography. Why? Because I liked it. I could say that I didn't like it all that I wanted. I could say, oh, I hate that I keep going back to this, but my actions proved otherwise. I loved porn. I didn't like the way it made me feel. I didn't like some of its consequences, but like an addictive drug, I didn't want to give it up. And coming to realize that was actually a jarring slap of reality in my face that I needed. That I, I actually do like this. Not that I was deceiving myself that I didn't. Understanding that I liked this now allowed me to approach and attack this thing differently. And so we'll talk more about why we should actually hate it in a minute. Uh, but here's another reason why porn is not an option, is actually balloons and not weight. If porn is not an option, now, when Marcy goes to bed early or I stay up late, when she is out of town or when I am out of town, now no longer do I have these wrestling nights of hours upon hours of will I or won't I, this inner emotional struggle and turmoil that in my past would most often end in yes, I will. Now it's just like, oh, that's no big deal. Yeah, porn's not an option. That's not a thing. Now, like, I can stay up late. She can be out of town. It's not a huge deal. Not an option. It's freedom and joy, both present joy and future joy. And so in Proverbs 9, Solomon warns his son of the voices that he listens to. There's this personified lady, Lady Wisdom, the personification of wisdom, who offers life, who offers security, who offers joy and contentment. And then across the street from her, on another corner, is Lady Folly, the personification of foolishness. And both are calling out to this young man for his heart. So beginning in Proverbs 9.13, the woman Folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the, at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. She cries, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You guys, every time that we move toward pornography, we move toward death. We lack sense. We don't realize that what is masquerading as sweet, as pleasant, is actually poison. And there is a pile of dead bodies behind this beautiful facade that we dumbly just walk past, pretend aren't there, and then just keep moving on. We don't stop to realize, we don't stop to consider the consequences. I justified not telling Marcy for so long because I was merely thinking about pornography as a vertical sin with vertical consequences. That I was sinning against God and it was, I understood, it was robbing me of joy and I didn't like that. But I've just got to figure this thing out and I've just got to make it right. I've got to make myself right with God. But there is no such thing as private sin. Vertical sin always has horizontal consequences. Always. Even if your sin isn't hurting anyone, 
It is drying you up. It is slowly forming calluses on your soul that makes you less of a wellspring of living water to water and bless your family, to water and bless your church, to water and bless the world around you. And yet, pornography has plenty more horizontal consequences than just that, even if you aren't married. And before we get into a few more of those horizontal consequences, I think there is something really freeing about the idea of kind of what I said earlier, that I just kind of assume that I'm under the assumption that, like, unless you've told me that pornography is an ongoing thing for you. I think there's something freeing in that, that most of us in this room, to some point or to a certain degree, certain degree, really struggle with sexual temptation, with lust, with pornography. It very much is every man's battle, as was the title of the book that was most in the Christian atmosphere when I was in college. And this is freeing because we can be freed from thinking of ourselves as some sort of isolated or irredeemable sexual deviant or freak. We are all in this together. But men, this should not be. This should not be our battle. We must, or we have completely forgotten as a culture and even in our churches of what purity feels like. I fear we have trivialized it so much. It's just every man's battle. Oh, you messed up this week. Oh, so did I. We have minimized what is actually happening, what we are actually doing. We are, listen, we are intentionally seeking out other image bearers of God to watch them express themselves naked. We are seeking out naked women, naked men who are having sex with other people, who are performing sexually for us. That's not like I messed up this week. That's not a mistake of last night. That is particularly heinous. Wicked. And I don't say that to heap guilt upon you, but to throw water in your face. It is just so part of our culture and just so accepted where our private schools have to talk about porn literacy. That's just the air we breathe that we don't, we have lost sight of how wicked pornography actually is. It is not just a bad habit. And while we, very likely, most of us in this room, will continue to struggle with sexual temptation, with lust, for the rest of our lives, the intentional seeking out of naked people who have sex with each other or who perform for you must not be an option. Now, next month, Ray Ortland has a book coming out. I'm so bummed that it's not, not out yet. Uh, you should always buy and read anything that Ray Ortland ever says or writes. But the, his book is called The Death of Porn. Yes. But listen then to the subtitle. He says, the title of this book, which I know nothing more than just what I see on the front cover, says, The Death of Porn, colon, Men of Integrity Building a World of Nobility. This is not just a just say no to this, but a what is God calling us to? God has saved you that you might live into integrity, that you might build a world, a household, a community, a church of nobility. 
a virtue of strength, not passivity, not weakness, not shame. And so a few years ago, a couple of us came up with as many reasons as possible that we should not look at pornography. Why, for Christians, for Christian men, pornography cannot be an option. So I just want to share some of those with you. The first thing is that Jesus died for the sin of lust, for the sin of sexual immorality. And so viewing and using naked people as is living as if he did not die for that. Viewing naked women is not masculine. It takes from, it exploits women rather than serving them, rather than protecting them. If you are ever talking about being masculine, about being men who will lead the church, and then you go to pornography, your life is in contradiction. We must be men of virtue and of strength to protect, not to exploit. Relatedly, viewing naked people is participating in human trafficking, the commercialization of the human body. If you are ever part of a trafficking campaign, or you are ever speaking out against like the Me Too movement or in favor of the Me Too movement about giving women their voice back, and then you go to pornography, contradiction. Next, viewing naked people disgraces them. Viewing a naked woman ignores her as God's image bearer. It ignores her parents, her children or her future children, her husband or future husband. Viewing naked people makes your wife, your present wife, or perhaps a future wife, feel unattractive, feel inadequate. As an aside, Marcy and I have counseled so many marriages on our living room couches, having to cry with, having to hold some of your wives, many of your friends' wives. And I don't say that to say, like, how dare you? Because I was in the exact same place 10 years ago. There was another couple that on the phone was holding my wife. And they told me then, the Matt and Robin Sawada said, if it meant that we had to go through that 10 years ago so that we can help you now, it was worth it. And I say that all the time. But guys, holding your wives is exhausting. Crying with your wives is exhausting especially for you Christchurch guys who we are in covenant relationship with each other, they are my sisters and I am tired of you sinning against them in this way. You should not sin against my sister if covenant church relationship in this way and we must think about our wives in the same kind of familial relationship. When we go to pornography, I am sinning against my wife, but I am also just causing all sorts of horizontal connections of destruction in the life of our church. Viewing and using naked people ruins your appetite for self-denying, God-exalting sexual unity with your wife, present or future. Viewing naked women who aren't your wife worships the idea of the female body as an idol. Viewing naked men who aren't your wife, obviously, 
also can then become worship of this ideal naked body. Seriously, like let that image settle into your heart as you open your laptop or you pull out your phone of you walking into a temple, perhaps the temple of Aphrodite or something, and then just literally bowing down and worshiping a golden image of a naked body. That is stupid. We go to it over and over and over again. So stupid. The idol never keeps its promise, and yet we keep going back to just this ideal naked body. Next, viewing naked people deadens your soul. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, or as another uh, translation says, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. These lusts are waging war against your soul and continually going to them deadens it. It sucks both passion for God and it sucks compassion for people from our hearts and our minds. Viewing naked people makes you think that it's okay as long as it's infrequent enough. That is like a Thanksgiving challenge. Or if I can just get this down to four or five times a year now, maybe down from the 20 or the 100 or the 200, compared to 200 times a year, four or five times a year, that sounds pretty good. But this is just the same as minimizing or managing a heinous addiction rather than killing it. Yes, we should celebrate progress. Yes and amen. And yet we must not stop. With progress. Viewing naked women who are not your wife is not keeping the marriage bed pure. It is actually bringing other people, their bodies, their emotions, their movements, their parts into your sexual life, a place reserved for your wife and for her alone. Or it trains you unmarried guys to do the same, to, to bring other people into your sexual life. Relatedly, it trains you to think that your wife is some sort of an actor that will behave in all of the ways that you have grown to expect her to behave, which, newsflash, is not real. Pornography is not reality. And we damage our sexual lives and we begin to perhaps even subconsciously begrudge our wives because they are not behaving in the way that we have long expected them to behave? It's not real. Viewing naked people ignores the covenant promises that are made at your wedding, or it trains you unmarried guys to ignore the covenant promises that you might make at your own wedding. Viewing naked people, naked women who are not your wife, is not being a one-woman man and is disqualifying yourself for future eldership. This is the qualification that Paul gives in 1 Timothy 3, to be the husband of one wife. Now, this has some uh, particular historical realities going on. I think Paul's saying, don't be polygamous, have 
be the, be the husband of one wife. And yet, what's going on in our heart when we are just giving our heart away left and right to other women who are not our wives? And so seriously, there have been a couple times in the past 10 years when I have like slapped myself into reality, when all of the, uh, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Uh, homing instinct, well, all that stuff like seemingly wasn't working. And I'm like, hey, I'm an elder of God's church. I must not look at porn. And that was what I needed. And so, most of you in this room are not elders of a church. And yet, I think it's good and right for all of you to aspire towards eldership. Maybe or maybe not, but begin beginning to put yourself on a trajectory where we are all men of virtue, creating a church of nobility who will lead our families, who will lead our church. More on that in a minute. But related, viewing and using naked people is a wicked example to other men, to your children or future children, to my children. One of my good friends who was a youth leader, he would always sit back in the back with all the high school boys here at Desert Springs, he began to realize as he was leading these conversations with them weekly that he actually had no ground to speak on with lust, with pornography, with them, because he was regularly going to pornography himself. And that was like the thing that he needed to wake himself up into, I've got to kill this if I want to encourage others. Put it to death so that you can help others in this church or in your church also put it to death. Consider the needs of others to be more significant than your own. The moment of temptation comes, think about other people that you want to be also leading out of this. Viewing naked people devalues potential or future marriage. We've already mentioned that the pornography epidemic is driving down actual sex. And we won't even get into the tsunami that is about to crash upon our shores of virtual reality sex and sex robots. And I am not in the slightest kidding about that. Like I think when I'm Ray Ortland's age, uh, you guys might invite me to come back and do a seminar when I'm in my 60s. And we will all look back with like, I don't know, look back in the early 2000s of when we were just looking at, or our children were just looking at images rather than what to do and how to counsel our young men out of use of sex robots. But <laughs> here's another reality that I've observed over the past decade. Again, this is under the heading of the reason of devaluing present or future marriage. Our churches are full of unbelievably godly and amazing single women. Single women, virtuous women, who would love to be married. But you keep telling yourself, you keep telling me that you're just not attracted to them. Why do you think that is? Because I, I want to say this as gently as possible. Um, but some of us dudes who are, who are perhaps threes or fours are expecting a 10, are expecting God to just drop down a porn star for us to marry. Why? 
because you have been watching porn stars have sex in front of you your entire life. That is what you have grown and trained your heart to desire. Porn gives us an overinflated sense of self and an accompanying, unrealistic expectation for a wife that God might give to you. Wake up. There are unbelievable, godly, amazing women surrounding you, but pornography has deceived you into thinking that somehow you deserve, somehow you require something more than her. Next, viewing and using naked people is training yourself for adultery. I'm not saying that this will happen to you, but in addition to the so many divorces, some in this church, some in Christ church, so many others from my college and high school friends in which pornography wrecked marriages, I now have two friends, in addition to all those divorces, I now have two friends who have spent time behind prison bars because of illicit sexual contact with a minor. One who just got sentenced to federal prison. Both of these guys who were married at the time of their illicit sexual contact with a minor. How does that happen? Because you train your heart, you train your mind into thinking that all other people exist for you. That any sex is good sex. That all people out there exist for me and therefore all people out there are sexually available, are willing and attainable. That you now as the judge of the entire universe are the arbiter of what is hot or not hot. Wickedness. Even if you never actually have sex with someone who is not your wife, you have deceived your heart and your mind. You have trained your desires into thinking that people exist for you. That what you want, you should get. That virtue and integrity are not all that important. Maybe you've heard me use the phrase before that you'll never be what you're not becoming. You'll never be what you're not becoming. We all know the really creepy guy who's in his 70s or 80s. The old man who's still like double-taking and doing the long gaze down the sidewalk. The 80-year-old man who's making horrible comments and really creepy advances towards women in their 20s. How did men, how did these kind of men get that way? They did not wake up on their 70th birthday. Now, suddenly devaluing women. They devalued women for a lifetime. They became that way. You guys who are in your teens, who are in your 20s, who are in your 30s, who are in 40s, 50s, and beyond, can you imagine still going to a pornography, masturbating with pornography when you are in your 80s? Can you imagine that? Maybe that is a reality for some of you guys, and it's not too late. But I hope the thought of that is just unbelievably undesirable, of you imagining yourself in your 80s still wrestling through and going towards the same vomit, the same broken and dirty water that you have gone to your entire life. 
the same broken cisterns of dirty water that you were going to when you were 16. But for some of you guys, you will in your 80s. That is, with your current habits, you will absolutely maintain those habits into your 20s, into your 40s, into your 60s, into your 80s. You will be what you are becoming. How do you become uh, a Ray Ortland kind of older guy? A man of virtue, of nobility, of courage, kindness, gentleness. You become that way over a lifetime. You will never be what you are not becoming. If you want to be rid of pornography in your 20s, begin getting rid of it now in your teens. If you want to be rid of pornography into your marriage, kill it now as a single dude. If you want to be rid of pornography by the time you are a grandfather, now, kill it now. If you want to be rid of pornography when you are in your 80s, you must begin killing it now. It will not just go away. You will never be what you are not becoming. You don't want to be in your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s, still like swerving into oncoming traffic as you like ogle the lady running by the academy. You don't want that, I assure you. And so we must now in our 20s and our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, begin relearning, retraining our heart to what purity feels like. As we are driving past the academy of reminding ourselves of blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And then one last reason, though there are undoubtedly hundreds, if not thousands more, if you keep coming back to pornography, you are showing that your love for your flesh is greater than your love for Christ. Are you actually trusting him? I ask this not to make, make it so that any of you who ever go back to pornography now again begin to like totally question your salvation, our assurance is grounded on Christ's work on our behalf and not on our work. We depend on a righteousness that comes not from the law, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And I absolutely don't want to create an overly burdensome culture of legalism and of condemnation that because we begin to, as a church, as men, say pornography is not an option, that then we are now hesitant scared to confess, that we are not gracious or patient or encouraging with each other as we kill pornography, but that maybe some of us ought to look realistically at what we say we love. That if Jesus or the golden naked body on the scales of our heart, Jesus always loses out, are we actually loving and trusting him? Has he taken hold of our heart? Has our heart taken hold of him? And so, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, just a few verses after the place where Jesus really gets after our hearts, that lust is, the, is adultery of the heart. Here's another thing. 
when we are lusting in our heart, and if Jesus is telling us that that is adultery of the heart, is it possible that the only reason that you actually aren't moving towards an adulterous relationship with that woman is actually just because you're a coward? The same impulses are there. We must do battle with them. But in that same place, just a few verses after, Jesus says that, says about money, that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. I think we can often think about how we spend money as like a thermometer. It's like a, it's like a gauge. It reveals and shows uh, where it reveals what we love. Where we spend our money is like a thermometer. It reveals what we love. But Jesus says it's just the opposite. That how we spend money isn't a thermometer, but is a thermostat. If you want to become more generous and love stuff less, then start with a radical evaluation of where and how you give. You don't wait for generosity to catch up with your heart. Where you put your treasure, there your heart will come also. Well, the same can be true of lust as well. Pornography certainly can be a thermometer, revealing darkness within. But we must not wait for our heart and our appetites to just simply catch up. No, Jesus says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. And just in case I need to say this, don't go do that today. Don't, I don't want to hear any stories about now you gouged out your eye or cut off your hand. I think Jesus is being overly hyperbolic here. After all, a blind man can still lust. A handless man can still do all kinds of evil. But Jesus is saying, take some drastic steps first to then let your loves and your passions begin to catch up, to begin to reorder. More on that in a minute. But many of us are really, really hesitant to get drastic, to get serious about this. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis presents a character. He's like this half-dead ghost who walks around with this little lizard on his shoulder. If you've read this book, you undoubtedly remember this image. This ghost man has a little lizard on his shoulder, and this lizard is always whispering in his ear. And as the ghost man approaches what in Lewis's allegory of this book is heaven, as the ghost man approaches heaven, an angel approaches him, and he asks the man, he asks, would you like me to make him quiet, talking about the lizard? Of course I would, said the ghost. Well, then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. Well, it's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I think I'll think it over. Think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. Uh, it would be most silly for you to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. 
All days are present now. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it would, I would kill it. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back to by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. The moment now contains all moments. And then on and on and on it goes. Do you want Jesus or will you keep making excuses? You are not saved by your works. You will be saved by the work of Christ alone, united to his life and his death and his resurrection. But is your ongoing worship of the golden naked body showing that you are not worshiping Christ? Will you kill it? Guys, you're about to get a really good book here. It's called Finally Free by Heath Lambert. It's full of gospel truth, reminders of some wonderful spiritual realities. It's also a wonderful balance of uh, both the reminder of the gospel, but then a call to very practical action to kill the lizard. And by the way, uh, by that, killing the lizard, I do not mean killing the idea of women out there as necessarily dangerous to you, as temptresses that you might accidentally have sex with. Women are not the problem. They are not the lizard. Your own sinful self-worship is the lizard that we must kill. Amen? But it's time to kill it. Pornography must not be an option for us any longer. And this book gives some really, really good practical advice, uh, which I actually haven't given a ton of today, intentionally, because I knew you were going to get this. So read through this together. I think Dave is going to tell you there's a sign-up on your table uh, that you could, now having opened this kind of conversation with some other men, we're going to cross-pollinate here amongst churches, uh, that you can read this book together and work through it together. Put into practice much of the stuff that you're going to read. Things like some of the drastic steps. I love how Heath Lambert talks about some of the drastic steps, about putting our treasure where our heart is and all that stuff, the, taking some drastic steps that will not change your heart, but will give the gospel a little bit of room to grow. That's a really, really good way of thinking about it. Maybe you need to get rid of your laptop. Maybe you need to get rid of your smartphone. You do not need a smartphone, I assure you. Teenagers, you do not need a smartphone, I assure you. I can, like, maybe you don't even wait on your parents to be the bad guy and take away your smartphone. I cannot imagine what damage I would have done to myself, even as a college student with a smartphone much less a 16-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 9-year-old. Parents, your kids don't need smartphones. It's okay to be the bad guy. Love them enough to be the bad guy. And I've got plenty more thoughts on that for you dads or for your teens. But yeah, this book describes the kind of interventionist, in-the-moment accountability that we need in this area, not the retroactive accountability group that is just a confessional booth that doesn't bring much growth, but of dudes who in the moment, who will text you reminders of why do you look for the living amongst the dead, who will call you immediately and say, bro, pornography is not an option. We need that in the moment, not after the fact. This book offers some other practical ways to cut off your hand, some drastic measure, measures that we need. Maybe even of deleting certain apps from your phone. 
I now have gotten to a place of a zero tolerance policy with an app on my phone. If this app just one time brings me to a place of sexual temptation, then it's gone forever. Gone from my phone. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And this book is a little dated in some of its, when is this book? At least 10 years old. It's a little dated in some of the like filtering technologies that are out there, 2013. Uh, I haven't used this for my family yet, but uh, just two months ago, Justin Taylor at the Gospel Coalition reviewed a new service called Canopy. If you just Google Justin Taylor Canopy technology, you will find the post. It looks phenomenal, like way better and way less clumsy and clunky than so many of the other things that are out there. Uh, But in all of this stuff, guys, it's time. It is time. No more excuses for why we should just let this thing stay here and eat away at our heart and our mind and our soul. Time to take some drastic steps to give the gospel a little room to grow. I hope that none of us ever look at pornography again. But here's the thing. We actually can't today make a decision for the rest of our life. What do I mean mean by that? I did not just give you leeway to... Uh, make excuses for a year from now or from 20 years from now. But I mean that the rest of your life is just a series of days, of day stacked upon day, stacked upon day, stacked upon day, which turns into years and decades. So while you might not actually be able to say today, I will never look at pornography again, what you can say is I will not look at pornography today. I am united to Jesus. I want to become a man of integrity in 10 years, in five years, in one year. So I will not look at pornography today. Today absolutely matters for next week, which absolutely matters for next month, which absolutely matters for next year. Today matters for the rest of your life. So in the very next moment of temptation, this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning, Thursday night, in the very next moment of temptation, whenever that comes, be faithful in the next thing. Just love Jesus in the next moment of temptation and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. Be faithful in the next thing. And then coming to Christ each day like new manna each morning, not looking at pornography today and then a new today tomorrow and then a new today tomorrow after that for the rest of your life and by the power of the Spirit, he will begin to make new habits. He will begin to cultivate and create new joys, new loves, new passions, ordered passions into a deeper communion with the triune God who has created you and who loves you. That by any means necessary, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. May it be so. Let me pray for us and then we'll continue on in our small groups. Uh, If you need to run to the restroom, before we get those going, do that. But I'm so glad to have been with you. I'd love to meet or talk, text, phone call over coffee or lunch, whatever, uh, as well as I think countless other guys in this room as well. But let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us to become men of courage, men of strength, men of virtue and nobility, because you have brought us from death to life, that you have united us from our old self to the very person of Jesus Christ who has defeated death, who has been raised from the grave and ascended into heaven and is now 
seated at the right hand of the Father, that for us, we Christians who are united to him, there is no other person in the universe closer to the person of God the Father than Jesus Christ is. And yet being united to him, that means that we share this life and this communion as well. Help us. Help us to be faithful in the next thing, choosing joy over death. We pray that we would, uh, as brothers, come alongside each other to encourage one another, to grow, to love. We pray that you would, by your spirit, create our new culture of our churches together, that we might once again learn what purity feels like, that we might see you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.